Hey, everybody. Good morning. I am Dave Burden. I am one of the pastors at Midtown Fellowship. Uh, excited to be opening up uh, the Word uh, with you guys this morning. I think they've already hinted that we're going to be talking about sin. Sometimes I feel like I'm the guy who always draws the sin forensic straw sermon. Um, but anyways, we'll, uh, we'll see why the Lord has that for me. But before we jump in, I um, want to... Uh, I want to remind you guys of a workshop that we have coming up this Thursday at 6.30 um, titled Raising Worry-Free Kids. Um, it's a parenting seminar that's uh, going to be led by Sissy Goff, uh, who, if you don't know who Sissy uh, is, uh, she's a uh, phenomenal counselor who's been a part of a counseling ministry here for uh, 20 or so years called Daystar. Um, it's going to be a really uh, opportune and timely uh, thing uh, to get to be a part of uh, for what it means to walk with our kids in the anxiety that they face and what does it mean for us to walk with our own anxiety uh, in parenting. Um, so would strongly encourage you uh, to make the effort to be there. Uh, would also strongly encourage you uh, to invite folks. I think we have like 250 or 300 people signed up already. Um, so I think we can fit like 400 folks in here. This would be a great gateway opportunity for people uh, to find uh, help in a really uh, felt need uh, and maybe find their way into this community as well, okay? So, just wanted you to know about that. Um, all right, a little bit of intro. Uh, I struggled a little bit uh, this week in writing this sermon. Some of it is because there is so much in here. Uh, I've got my timer here, which I always struggle with, if you don't know that, about me. Uh, there's a lot in this passage that we could unpack, um, a lot of significant things. Uh, but I mostly struggled in writing this sermon uh, because of the subject matter, uh, which involves the taking of life, uh, involves murder, a brother murdering uh, his brother, uh, which touches uh, obviously very sharply, uh, very painfully acute uh, for us in the wake of the mass shooting at Covenant and the taking of life uh, that happened there uh, just a few weeks ago. And so uh, I am trusting the Lord, uh, and I'm asking you to do this with me. I'm trusting the Lord and his timing. Uh, when we plan these sermon series, we obviously don't know the future. Uh, trusting that this is the passage that the Lord wants us uh, to lean into this morning for us, but really want to acknowledge that before we begin. So, um, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Genesis. We had Palm Sunday and we had Easter, right? So I don't know if on like shows, like Netflix shows, where it says like previously on Genesis, right? Like we need a little bit of that. Like, oh, that's right, we're in Genesis. Um, what is the book of Genesis? Let me just say this. Um, the book of Genesis was written, we believe, by Moses, right? To Israel after their exodus from Egypt and from the hard, heavy hand of Pharaoh, and the purpose of the book is basically this. It's to teach a group of people, the Israelites, who had in, in, been enslaved for 400 plus years in Egypt, right? And 400 plus years in a culture that worshiped multiple gods, including Pharaoh. Pharaoh would have been considered a deity. The purpose is to teach this group of people, this is who the Lord truly is. This is who the Lord is. And also to remind them of this, this is who your identity is as God's people. As those who were, we talked about creation, created by God, created for God, chosen by God, rescued now by the Lord 
to now live in the world as his unique, distinct, image-bearing people. So that's the purpose of the book. It's also this, to remind them or to warn them of their chronic waywardness as a people. You can maybe say it this way, of their spiritual DNA, of their nature, sin nature, since the fall, of their family history. You can compare the word Genesis and genetics, right? Of their family genes. Of not, in sin, imaging their heavenly father, but more regularly and often imaging their great, 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 great grandfather, Adam. And Moses knows and understands something, and it's this. Until we see the Lord rightly, until we see him and experience him for who he truly is, until we know him like that, we cannot know ourselves rightly. And we cannot know who we are truly called to be. So that was true for them, and that's why Genesis is true for us. It matters to us. So where do we leave off in Genesis? Well, Adam and Eve, that's where we were at right before Palm Sunday. They were in the garden, right? They had eaten from the tree that God had forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? He warned them, don't do that or you will surely die. And they were deceived by Satan. They disobeyed that command that the Lord gave them. And yet, even in the garden, this is hard sometimes to miss, but even in the garden, we see God's grace to Adam and Eve in the garden Right there at the fall, they didn't die, at least immediately. Death entered into the world at that point. And yet, in their shame, what do we see the Lord doing? He seeks them out. He goes after them. He finds them in their shame. He clothes them, right? And yes, he does banish them from the garden. He says, you can't be here anymore, right? And why did he do that? Scripture says it really clearly. So they could not eat from the tree of life. You've eaten from this tree. I cannot let you eat from this tree. Why? To live eternally. I cannot let you live eternally in a broken state of sin and a broken relationship with me and therefore a broken relationship with one another. I've got bigger plans for you than letting you eat and live eternally in this state. So I'm banishing. Even the banishment is grace. You see it? Grace isn't the absence of consequences or cost because God's grace was costly. But we get the first glimpses here in the garden of God's great redemptive plan to restore. I'm going to restore right relationship with me. And ultimately, once that gets in line, there can be right relationship with one another and all of creation. I'm sending one, remember the covenant that he gave Adam, a seed from the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. So this is where we pick up and what's about to be read. Adrian Peterson, you want to start coming up? Everybody, Adrian Peterson. She's going to read the read the Bible for us. This is where we pick up. Leave out verse 17. Hold on. We're just outside the garden. Sorry, thank you. I tore a hamstring last night too, so if I fall over and go down, someone just come prop me back up. Um, the firstborn of the first woman has arrived, Cain and his brother Abel, who Martin Luther, not Luther Vandross, I said Luther in there. Martin Luther actually believed Eve would have understandably hoped that maybe this, right, a seed 
that is to come that is going to crush the serpent's head. Here's my boy. Possibly the one that's coming that's going to reverse the curse. Cain's here. And yet, what do we see in what Adrian's about to read? The devastating, far-reaching effects of sin on full display just one generation in. The same pattern, the same story, just different details of Adam and Eve. The apple truly did not fall far from the tree. All right? Adrian, please read for us. This is Genesis 4, verses 1 to 16. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look on favor, look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Hmm. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be rest, a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, uh, teach us now. Holy Spirit, guide us. Uh, help our hearts hear what you want our hearts to hear. Um, and this passage makes clear we need your help. <laughs> help us. We love you. Amen. All right, three things uh, I'm going to try to do here in t about 20 minutes. So we'll see. They're all kind of weighted the same, but I'm just not sure we'll get to it all the same. But the worship, the warning, and the mark. Okay? Those are the three things we're going to talk about. The worship that we see going on in here, the warning that God gives Cain, and then this mark that he gives Cain at the end. All right? So if you followed along with what Adrian read, the opening of the story it actually sounds kind of hopeful. I would encourage you to go back and read through this story a few more times. But Adam and Eve, uh, right, they're outside the garden. We get the impression that they got, you know, the cherubim and the flaming swords, but they're like just kind of in the suburbs of the garden, right? And the Lord, this is something we could easily miss, but the Lord's still present, right? 
I don't know if you've ever thought like God stayed here and said, kind of work your way back. But God didn't stay in the garden. And we kind of get even the incarnation at that moment, right? God moving towards his broken kids. Like David said in Psalm 23, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and love are following already. They're being allowed to and supported to carry out the mandate that God gave Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful and multiply in the world, subdue all of creation, albeit, you know, different and difficult conditions uh, to the garden. But they're, they're being allowed to still carry out their purpose. So we see purpose here. We see God's presence here. And Eve gives birth to Cain and then to Abel. And Eve's comment is really powerful. With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. All right? So what is Eve doing? Eve is acknowledging something that God ultimately is the giver of life. And that the only way that that was going to happen was her dependence on him for that to happen. So there's a lot of beauty going on here. And then it kind of ends, this section of it ends where the boys who are carrying out the work of Adam, some are working the soil, some are working the, you know, the flocks. They bring an offering to the Lord from their different respective roles is what's going on. Which for the audience at the time, remember this is written to Israel post the Exodus. We're not 100% sure had they received the Mosaic law and all the stipulations, but there's no real reason at this point, obviously, Cain and Abel's a long time before that, they're not making some kind of offering for their sin right now, some sort of atonement offering. The word for offering there literally is the word dedication. They are showing to some degree their dedication to the Lord. It's a gift. And the audience would have understood that act, the people this being, you know, being written to, have seen that as depicting an act of worship a heartfelt acknowledging of the Lord with what they have, right? I'm showing this, I'm giving this to the Lord. We all, we all know this. When you give a gift in its purest form, when we do that with one another, what we're saying to the person that we're giving the gift to is, is this, you matter. You matter to me. I'm focused on you. At least for this moment, I'm focused on you. You're the thing. But something was off with one of the offerings, or maybe a better way to say it was something was off with the offerer of the offering. I called it an offering at one point today. And God's response helps us because he's trying to help Cain in particular understand what's off, at least in his heart. So the offerings are what? They're initially compared there in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor at Abel's offering, but not on Cain's offering, and Cain was angry and his face was downcast, right? So they're compared. And this is, this is really subtle here, but just lean in with me. The firstborn, Cain, brings some of the fruits of his soil. And the original language there for soil, and I don't always love doing this because it makes you feel like you just can't read your Bible, but this one matters, okay? The word soil is the same word for the word Adam. He brought some of the fruit of Adam to the Lord. Now, I just want you to think about this. What was the fruit of Adam? 
Adam didn't make fruit, right? Adam took fruit. Adam was a taker, not a giver, originally. And Abel, right? So compared to that, the younger brother brought the firstborn, the fat portions. Just hang on that word, first. He brought what was first. He brought his firsts, his bests. As a sign of his faith, he's literally saying, you are first. And so the offering, somewhat hard to to see, but subtly begins to display the different motivations or the heart state of the giver. Namely this, that Cain's gift was motivated by what he hoped to receive. Abel's gift was one made in faith and worship of the Lord. Hebrews 11.4, sometimes you have to do this, go to other places in scripture where these people are talked about to get a better sense of this. Use scripture to interpret scripture. Hebrews 11.4 says this, by faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteousness when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. What matters, Hebrews says, is not the offering, it's the faith in which it was offered. Maybe you could say it like this. Abel gave the Lord his heart, not just the fatty portions of his flocks. Cain was found to be withholding his heart or half-hearted. And that was shown subtly in the gift he brought. But it was clearly mostly seen in his response to how the Lord favored Abel's gift. It was almost as though he's saying, I want you to be wholehearted towards me, Lord, but I'm not gonna be wholehearted towards you. I want your favor, but I'm not gonna favor you. And what was his response? It says there, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Cain was very angry. He was intensely, vehemently, is the word there, angry. He was white hot. Not just a little bummed. Why? Because he didn't get what he wanted. What he believed even maybe that he deserved. He was jealous of Abel. He was envious of Abel. Maybe you could even say he felt entitled to it. Now think about this for a second because we've all... We've all been in this moment, right? You ever been at a birthday or a baby shower or something like that where one person is receiving all the gifts and you were a person bringing the gifts, right? And there is a little gift Olympics going on inside of all of us, isn't there? You know, you're kind of watching the gifts be open and you're watching the person's face who's receiving them and you're kind of hoping that your gift kind of lands just right, you know? And they have that like little sparkle moment where everyone kind of knows, right? That your gift is the gift of the moment, right? If you don't, if you're totally lying to yourself, you've got a blind spot. You've got something crouching at your door if you've never done that. Uh, But if you were that person, maybe you've been the giver of the gift, but you've definitely been the giver of the, hey, thank you. And... (laughs) If you were that person, um, 
because it says that his face was downcast, he literally was scowling is what the word means. Imagine if the giver of, not the gift, but the thank you, literally started flipping out at the birthday party at the baby shower. Like you're sitting in a circle and that person was like, Like we would all stop and go, uh, whose name am I going to use right now? <laughs> hey, Dave, <laughs> are you okay? <laughs> oh, great. You know, like we would all go, what's wrong with you? Why are you making this about you? And that's kind of what the Lord's doing here. It's like exactly. He was white hot because it was all about him. I got you there, didn't I? It's all right. Just let it go. Just take a moment. I'll take a drink here for a second. You can laugh. Y'all, next time y'all are in that setting, you're going to be waiting for someone to lose it. You're going to be like, hmm, who's the cane in here? <laughs> he lost it. He was white hot. It was all about him. Abel brought an offering by faith to God. Cain brought expectations, not a gift. And don't our disappointments often expose our demands? Study your disappointments. Let him show you what it says about what's going on in here. Abel was focused on the Lord and on giving. Cain was focused on receiving and on himself. And the irony was this, Abel gets what Cain wants through offering what Cain can't. His heart and faith, which was expressed in the form of an offering. Abel's gift was a reflection of his heart. Cain had a heart issue, not an offering issue. God wasn't a, a bacon over Brussels sprouts guy. He was looking and saying, I don't want your soil offering. I want your heart, Cain. I don't want your stuff. I want you. Cain had a heart issue. And it's why later he's found ignoring the Lord's warning about his heart and his sin and putting the value of his life over his brothers because God sees before the offering that he had already put himself ahead of the Lord. You got a heart issue, Cain. So, you got a worship issue, Cain. <laughs> You're worshiping the wrong thing. Your heart isn't there. So he gives him a warning, second point. The Lord sees what's going on in Cain's heart because that's what the Lord sees, right? First Samuel 16. We see on the outside, we see the appearance, the Lord sees the heart. And he graciously warns him. I don't know, we don't treat warnings, our pride doesn't like to treat warnings as grace. <laughs> God graciously, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Is God asking questions because God doesn't know the answer to questions? No, that wouldn't make him much of God, right? He's graciously warning him, seeking him out in his anger, which is tough, right? Who likes moving towards an angry person? And he gives him some instruction. In that moment, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? 
In some ways, he's saying, hey, Cain, you know, this worship thing, we can get it sorted out. There's a redo here. He's giving him an opportunity to repent and get his heart right. The next time you come, come like this. Come with your heart. If you give me, it's like saying this, if you give me your heart and not your offering, <laughs> offering, that's what pleases me. A broken and a humble heart, David said in Psalm 51, is what I'm looking for. It's what the Lord is looking for. But if you do not do what is right, here's the warning. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Always pay attention to the buts in the Bible. I know you could go a different direction with that statement. The buts matter in the Bible. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So God looking favorably at Abel's offering and not Cain's was God inviting Cain to look into himself, into his sin and into his sinful heart, into his angry heart that would easily and soon, we see, manifest itself in sinful hands of murder. I'm warning you, sin's crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You know, it's painful here, uh, but I do it. I do, I'm, I do this with the Lord. I do it with other people. There's no curiosity in Cain. No like, huh, that's interesting. I, I don't see the seriousness of what's going on here. Tell me more, Lord. There's no curiosity that the Lord might actually see something that Cain doesn't see. In fact, when we look at his response here in a few minutes, there's nothing but contempt for the Lord. He responds to him as an equal. And still in the middle of all that, God is graciously trying to show Cain his hidden sin. And we need that. I'm just going to point of personal privilege here, go off, off for a second. We need someone outside of us to help us see our sin. That's part of why community and being part of a faith community, being in a small group, actually having real depth of friendship where people that you've invited into your life saying, I need you to help me see what's going on in me because I do have blind spots is so valuable. We need that. But Cain, the Lord is doing that directly for Cain. He isn't having it. In fact, he's not just not having it. Sin is having his way with him. And God is saying to Cain in this moment, you don't understand the seriousness of sin. You're not seeing things clearly. And he uses this powerful image, crouching at the door, to make a point. Sin is crouching at your door, which is basically to say this. Sin is powerful, sin is dangerous, and sin, because the word there for crouching is the word for like a tiger or a leopard. Crouching, it's, it's trying to conceal itself, it's trying to hide and look smaller than it is. And it's doing so intentionally because sin wants you to underestimate it because it's out for you. It's not there to play. Sin is hiding itself and it's doing so intentionally. It's trying to look smaller than it is in order to deceive you, in order to destroy you. And we know this. If you don't know this, wake up. Very few 
capital S sins, right? Like 10 commandment sins, murder, theft, adultery. None of those just happen. All of those start small in the thoughts of the heart and the mind and they build momentum over time to the point to where you're actually able to act on those things. Like a snowball. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was about. Go read Matthew 5 through 7. Right? What's going on in here eventually manifests itself out here. God's trying to warn Cain of that. Right? You, you got to be careful there. You got something crouching at your door. You got a leopard at your door. And you, you cannot domesticate that thing. You know? You can't be one of those people. And there's, these people exist. I hope you're not one of them. I'm about to make fun of you. Who like get a lion and try to turn it into a house cat. You know, we've all seen the videos of like, look at me with my Bengal tiger, right? Until you turn into the meal for the tiger. You've forgotten who the king of the jungle is. You, you ultimately aren't more powerful than sin. The only one greater is he that is in you than greater than he that is in the world. The only way you're going to rule over sin is if you bring it to the ruler of sin. The one who, 2 Corinthians 10 says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. I don't master it. I bring it to the master and he masters it. But we do this all the time. I do this all the time. I'm not just not aware that it's crouching. I let my sin in and I try to tame it. Like it's something to be tamed, something to be controlled. Sin is never something to be tamed or controlled. It's something to be named. It's something to be repented of. It's something to be killed, is what scripture says. Because sin doesn't have a conscience. Sin has an agenda. It is not neutral. It is not just something you can kind of take or give. It's after you. Sin doesn't have a conscience and it only wants what its father, Satan, wants, which is your destruction. And the destruction of everything that is right, that is true, that is beautiful, that is good, life. John Owen, famous Puritan, said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. God is warning Cain, son, careful. You're about to put to death the wrong thing. Your brother, not your sin. Something needs to be put to death, but it's not able. It's what's going on inside of you. So let me tell you, oh my goodness, I gotta hurry. One of the most dangerous ways that sin crouches at your door is this, um, focusing on how it crouches at everyone else's door. You're gonna have to think about that one this week. One of the most dangerous ways sin crouches at our doors is us focusing on how it's crouching at someone else's door. I'm always better at pointing out your tiger, right? I see your sin, but here's the deal. If I can see it in you, it's because it's in me somewhere. My pride, which pride is Satan's calling card, always deceives me and it hides my sin and the cloak that it uses is your shame. Your faults, your sin, makes me feel like I'm not broken. 
So comparison is one of the chief ways, maybe the greatest in our culture, that sin crouches at the door. And we're comparing ourselves to one another all the time, aren't we? You know, wealth, accomplishment, status, beauty, favor, performance. We're always measuring ourselves and saying, am I better than them or worse than them? If I'm better than them, if I'm more than them, pride. If I'm worse than them, if I'm not enough, opportunity for covetousness, covetousness, envy, jealousy, greed, hatred. So here's just a, a real good litmus test. If you're saying these sentences in your heart, at least I'm not like that. Tiger alert. Or at least I'm like this. Tiger alert. So maybe some time this week could be spent, where are you domesticating sin? And get specific. Where am I calling what God calls sin acceptable and safe to have in the house? And is it possible that's why things are fractured? That's why things are breaking apart in our lives. Not because God's not good and he's not with us. But because I've let, I'm not just not aware that sin's crouching at the door. I've brought it in the house. And spend a little more time in front of the mirror and a little less time in front of the window. Mirror time is me allowing the Lord to show me. Window time is me looking at everyone else. Okay? Last thing. Woo! One minute. One minute? Take my time. No, no, no. No, no, no. Here we go. Lastly, we got the worship and the heart issue. We got the warning, and now we have the mark. So Cain doesn't, you know, heed the Lord's word to him. His anger turns into action, and he kills his brother. And the Lord repeats, again, what he did with his father and mother. He's still moving graciously towards Cain. What is this that you've done, right? What have you done? And Adam, you know, remember he blamed Eve and kind of God passively, this woman that you gave me, right? At least when you blame somebody, you know you did something wrong. Something wrong happened. But Abel's like, I didn't do anything. And who am I? Am I my brother's keeper? Like, I'm going to turn the question back on you. You see it? He's incensed with the Lord even asking the question. He lies to the Lord and then he asks arrogance. In arrogance, he questions God. What, what am I, my brother's keeper? And the answer by scripture is yes, you're called to be. And God's saying, look, I know what you've done. I didn't ask for my ignorance. I asked for yours. And still, I'm giving you a chance to repent, to own what you've done. Rather than double down on your rebellious heart, but you double down. And therefore, because this is love, because discipline loves, right? Or love disciplines. The curse of Adam is going to grow. It won't just be hard for you to farm. The soil is not going to give you anything anymore because your brother's blood is in it. And you're going to be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain says, Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land. I'll be hidden from your presence, right? I'll be a restless wanderer. Whoever finds me will kill me. My punishment is more than I can bear. Still, even in this moment, his reply to God is entirely focused on himself. 
what's going to happen to me? No remorse about his brother. No remorse for his parents and what he's done to his family. Right? Not like David who says, I've sinned against the Lord (laughs) when he took Uriah's life and Bathsheba. He's not sad about his sin. He's just sad about the effects of his sin on him. And yet the Lord, good golly, still, this is where, man, me and the Lord, we part ways. I am not Jesus. We are not Jesus. The Lord shows him a degree of care and protection by giving him a mark. No one's going to take your life. No one's going to serve vengeance on you. I'm going to protect you still. It's astonishing grace and mercy to an unrepentant heart. So if the warning says this, sin is more serious than you can imagine. You're juggling chainsaws, son. The mark is saying this. My grace and my mercy, not absent of justice, but in concert with justice, are more than you can imagine as well. And one day, when the real seed that was prophesied in Genesis 3 comes, you're going to see how far that concert of mercy and justice goes and who it's going to cost. Who's going to bear the punishment that I can't bear? In Hebrews 12, Abel's blood is referred to again. God here says, Abel's blood is crying out to me. And the only cry of Abel's blood at this point could be this, justice, conviction for the sinner. But the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus' blood that also cries out, and it cries out something more. Here's what it says. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator... That's a legal position between the judge who can render the verdict and the accused. I am mediating something different, a new covenant, a new mark, a new sign of protection. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's the better word? Well, it's actually the same word. It's just better. It's justice. Give them justice. But justice, this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we celebrated at Easter, justice for those who by faith in Jesus have trusted that he has paid for every past, present, and future sin. Justice is mercy. You You see it? You hear it? Jesus, who stands before the throne, Hebrews says, day and night and intercedes for us. He is saying to God the Father, give him justice. And here's what's justice. I justly paid for the wrath that you had for their sin. And so now you have to give them mercy. That's what's just. You have to give them my glory. You have to give them my righteousness. You have to give them my honor. Father, you have to give them mercy because that's what's just. I took your wrath. I took the punishment that they couldn't bear. I am beyond able. I didn't just make an offering, I was the offering. I was the firstborn. I didn't die unwillingly, I died willingly that they could be given my record and standing in your sight. Isaiah 53 
prophesies about it. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. We all like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord, or and each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel, y'all. That we got a mark too. That the punishment that we cannot bear, the Lord said, I'll, t- I'll take that mark so that they can have this one. The power of the height and the breadth of God's love for us in the blood of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, thank you that this shows us um, that from the beginning you have been after our hearts, never our stuff. Um, that you so deeply um, want our hearts and you are a relentless pursuer of them. Uh, help us see, uh, Lord, where we make small of sin. Um, where we're not uh, willing to be shown that and repent of that. Help us to see your warning in our lives as mercy and as grace. And thank you uh, ultimately for your son uh, whose blood cries out a better word for the mark uh, that is offered us in Jesus by faith and by grace alone and by his work, that mark that we would never have to bear the punishment that was ours to bear because you bore it for us that we might be righteous in your sight. Uh, That is scandalous, Uh, but it's the truth. We love you in your name, amen.